Were you there when they crucified my Lord is a African-American spiritual. It focuses on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by asking a series of questions. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? The song is designed to make sure that we do not divorce the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, from our lives. It's seeking to make sure that we are participating, so to speak, and that we are there in thinking and reflecting upon what happened on Calvary's cross. The cross is not some isolated event, something detached from you and from me as the people of God. In fact, the song says if we get it right, uh, then we will tremble, 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 when we think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As we continue to look at the passion narrative in Mark chapter 14 and chapter 15, it's possible that as we come to our text, we might divorce the arrest of Jesus from our lives. It's possible that this event could be detached from us, that all, that all we simply do is hear the words of the text, but we're not actually engaged with the text and with what is taking place. And so the question that I have for you is, were you there when they arrested my Lord? Were you there? I trust that God will use his text in our lives to help us to realize that the arrest of Jesus, his betrayal and his arrest, is not just simply an event that took place, but rather the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that we should consider and reflect upon, and it should cause us to tremble. 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 And so I ask you the question again, were you there when they arrested my Lord? Judas was there when they arrested Jesus. In fact, according to verses 43 through 45, Judas betrayed Jesus there. He rightfully deserves the title, the betrayer. That's the title that was given all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 19, when the disciples of Jesus are listed. Judas is identified as the betrayer. Jesus, Judas arrives on the scene. Jesus has just spoken. And the next person who enters into the stage is Judas. 
the Lord had been agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had revealed to his disciples what was taking place and what was going to take place. He wanted the cup to pass away. He didn't want to go to the cross, so to speak. But in the midst of his agony, he cried out to God and asked that God will would be done in his life. When Jesus finished praying to his father on three separate occasions, he comes back to his sleeping disciples, his closest associates, and they are asleep, particularly Peter, James, and John. And he finally tells them these words, Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And immediately while Jesus is saying those words, Judas arrives on the scene. Judas had left Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper before the Lord's Supper was instituted. Judas was not there in the Garden of Gethsemane. When visibly it was demonstrated that Jesus was distressed and troubled. When Jesus vocally said, my soul is grieved to the point of death. But now Judas shows up. He arrives. And when he arrives, Mark describes him as one of the twelve. We know that. But why would Mark describe him in that way? Because he wants us to remember that Jesus wasn't betrayed by, quote, enemies. Jesus was not betrayed by those who hated him. But Jesus was betrayed by one of his very own, one of his 12 disciples. It was one of his disciples that did this dastardly deed. It was one of Jesus' closest associates, one who heard him speak, one who saw his miracles that he performed. It was one of the twelve. That is hard for you and I to imagine. We would have never scripted that way, that someone from Jesus' inner circle would be the one that would betray him. But Mark wants us to keep in mind that it wasn't the religious leaders, it wasn't the enemies, it was one of the twelve. One who walked and lived with Jesus day in and day out and saw the Lord perform these miraculous miracles and heard the words of the Lord But despite all of that, Judas betrays the Lord. Mark lets us know that Judas was not by himself. He was accompanied by a multitude, by a crowd. The people in the crowd are not 
necessarily identified, but more than likely they are the temple police. They are an official. They are religious leaders, religious officers. They make up the crowd. Judas is the leader, but these individuals are accompanying Judas. More than likely, Roman soldiers were involved because a lot of things cannot take place without the authority of the Roman soldiers. The crowd is further identified as having swords and and clubs. They had daggers. Knives, so to speak, that were about that long in wooden clubs. So they are with Judas. They are associated with him. And they come, not on their own, but they come from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They're there because There were some religious people who hated the Lord. There were some religious people who detested the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were looking for the opportune time to get Jesus and seize Jesus and arrest him. And Judas has opened the door for that. And here is Judas. He arrives. And with Judas is this crowd, this multitude of individuals. And prior to them coming to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is, Judas and the crowd, probably the religious leaders, are a part of it in the sense of how it was planned, but they've agreed on how to identify Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, that's kind of strange. Wouldn't everybody recognize the Lord? But this is happening in the darkest time of the night. Even though the moon might be shining, there were no bright lights in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was not like a park atmosphere where there were benches and lampposts so that the area was well lit. No, it's dark. And probably there are a lot of people in the Garden of Gethsemane Remember, this is the high point of the religious activity in Jerusalem. People have come from all over the place to celebrate the Passover. And they had, many of them, no place to stay. And some of them might have been camping and sleeping out in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, Judas and this, these religious leaders have decided that the plan is that Judas would take the lead and the crowd would be with him. And Judas would have to give some kind of sign so that they would know that the one they are to seize and grab hold of is none other than Jesus. And so they agreed upon a sign. Judas would kiss Jesus. And that's how they would know that Jesus was the one to be taken and seized and arrested. And Judas made sure that if he was arrested, that this crowd made sure that there was no way at all 
that Jesus could escape. When we come to verse 45, it fleshes out the plan. We, we see in verse 45 that after Judas comes, he went to Jesus saying, Rabbi, can you imagine the hypocrisy of Judas, the treachery of Judas, one who is closely associated with the Lord Jesus Christ? He has agreed to betray Jesus. He has agreed to fill the role of the betrayer. And he comes to the Lord in the dark of the night, and he comes close to the Lord and addresses the Lord in a familiar way that disciples would address their leader, rabbi, master. An address of honor, an address of respect, And then after addressing Jesus as rabbi, Judas goes on to give Jesus a kiss. A kiss of friendship, a kiss of hospitality. It it probably wasn't a kiss on the lips or a kiss on the cheek. Many times they would kiss on the hand to honor the person. And so here is Judas And he gives Jesus a kiss. And it's interesting, Mark uses a different term for kiss in describing the act than when they made the plan to do that act. It's a word that is intensified. It means that Judas probably gave a prolonged kiss of the hand to make sure that the crowd took note of the one that they were to greet, to to seize and grab. Judas was there when Jesus was arrested. He betrayed the Lord. And this is the last time that he's going to be mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. His last word, rabbi. His last act, he kissed Jesus. The other Gospel writers will say more about Judas how his life ended in suicide. But Mark is done with Judas. He's done with the betrayer. He wants us to know that he was there. As we've already seen and alluded to, the crowd was also there when Jesus was arrested. In verse 46, we see the the crowd sees Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Once the betrayer gave the sign, the crowd took action. And what did they do? They laid hands on him. They laid hands on the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, laying hands on, can be used in a positive way. It can be used for blessing someone. It can be used for healing someone. It can be used for identifying someone with someone. But here it's used in a negative sense. They're not seeking to bless Jesus. They're not choosing to identify with Jesus. They use their hands to grab him. It's a crowd. It's a multitude. So I don't know how many hands are involved, but that's what they did. They grabbed Jesus. And not only did they grab him, they 
seized him. That is, they arrested him. Not arrest in the way that we're used to in our modern day. They didn't handcuff him. They didn't read him his Miranda rights. They didn't say, you probably need to get a lawyer or you get a call. No, they arrested him and seized him so that he might face trial before the religious leaders. So this multitude made up of the temple police, the Roman soldiers, Jewish officials, they laid their hands on Jesus and they arrested him. They were there. But not only were the enemies of Jesus there, there were also Jesus' friends who were there. Peter was there when Jesus was arrested. We learn this in verse 47. Peter sought to defend the Lord there. In Mark's version, Mark doesn't say anything about who this individual is. He just tells him in verse 47, one of those standing by took action. And one of those standing by drew his sword, which lets us know that possibly the disciples were armed. I know sometimes it's hard for us to think maybe Christians can be armed. I remember when I was in seminary, I grew up in a household, basically there were no guns. I remember uh, no, I had a brother, he's no longer alive, but he had a gun, and he had left it in the house. He wasn't living in the house, but he had left it actually on the back seat of my car. He had taken my car and went out to the valley, and I found out where my car was, and I took my car and drove it home. And lo and behold, I looked in the back seat, and there was a gun on the back seat of my car. Thank God I wasn't arrested. I'm sure the police would not have bought the line. Well, that's my brother's gun. I didn't know it was there. But I remember one day in the house, foolishly playing around with my brother's gun. I didn't know anything about a gun. I didn't know uh, know, where the bullets were or anything. I just remember me and my friend were sitting there. Thankfully, I didn't point it at him, but I pointed it at the ground and pulled the trigger. Heard a loud noise. I'm stupid. I don't know anything about guns. I just thought, well, maybe it was what happens when there's a blank in the gun. And so life went on. Then one day, I was living with my mom. One day, my mom was cleaning in the house and looked at the window frame, the wood around the window, and saw a bullet lodged in the wood. in the wooden section of the window pane. And I couldn't, you know, she's wondering, no, who, no, who did that? So <laughs> and the, the other thing I noticed is that when I did shoot the gun and, you know, it kind of tore some of the carpet, but again, I just thought it's powerful air coming out of the gun. But, but I say all of this because I didn't know anything about guns. 
And I'm in seminary, and one day my professor, who I esteemed highly, he told me how he had a gun. I couldn't believe it. What, what is this short, godly man doing with a gun? And then I learned, I guess it's okay to have a gun. And I know some of you probably have a gun, but I won't ask if you do. But here was a bystander. He had a sword. Just like those who came after Jesus had sword, he had a sword. He drew his sword, and he used it to strike the the servant of the high priest. Many believe that he was going for his head, but was not too good at using the sword and just ended up cutting off the ear of the high servant. Mark doesn't tell us who this bystander is. Bystander is. But when you look at Matthew, Luke, and John, and you put the accounts together, we learn that it was Peter. Peter drew his sword. Peter struck the servant of the high priest Caiaphas. He wasn't that great of an aim, evidently. And he cut off the ear of the servant who is named Malchus. When that event happened, Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, Peter, put up your sword. I don't need you, so to speak, to defend me. Jesus says, Peter, if I wanted to, I could cry out to my father. And my father would provide with me 12 legion of angels. A legion was 1,200. So Jesus says, at my disposal, if I needed help, if I needed someone on my side, I could cry out to my father. I don't need you, Peter to try to defend me. But Peter was there when they arrested Jesus. And it goes without saying, the Lord was there. That's a given. We see that in verses 48 and 49. We see that Jesus understood why he was there. He was not startled. He was not shocked. He he was not amazed, saying, why? Why is this happening? Our Lord understood why he was being arrested. His concern is how he was arrested. The, The manner, the method that the crowd used to arrest him. And so Jesus points out to them, you're arresting me like I'm a criminal. He says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? The term robber was used earlier in Mark chapter 11 uh, when it was dealing with Jesus cleansing the temple. And remember when he cleansed the temple, he said the temple was to be a place of prayer, but the people had made it into what? A den of robbers. A den of robbers. And then later on, when Jesus is crucified on the cross, there are going to be two robbers on each side of of him. He's crucified in the midst of two robbers. So a robber was a criminal, an an outlaw. And here Jesus is seized 
by the crowd as if he is a robber. And there was no evidence, no proof in in Jesus' life that he ever conducted himself in that way. So why are you coming as if I'm a robber? Why do you have these clubs and these swords as if I am the worst kind of criminal there could be? And Jesus challenged them also because they arrested him in the night, in the dark. And he wants to know, What's behind that? He says to them again in that verse, Every day I was with you in the temple doing what he always does. And what does he do? He's teaching. And you did not seize me. Here they are. They waited to the darkest of night. They used darkness as a cloak to hide what they were doing. And Jesus just gets in their face. He says, I was daily. And when you follow what we've been looking at ever since Mark chapter 11, when Jesus entered into the temple on Palm Sunday, ever since then, he's in the temple or he's around the temple. And he says, I was in the temple daily. And not only was I in the temple daily, but I was with you talking about the crowd. I was accessible to you. I wasn't hiding from you. I wasn't ducking from you, but I was with you. And he says, yet you did not seize me. Did not seize me. Why have you chosen this manner of arresting me in the dark? And if we've been following Mark carefully, we know why. Because they were cowards. They were afraid of the people. You just go back to Mark chapter 14, verse 1. And it says that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth. Why? They wanted to kill him. They were afraid of the people. They feared people rather than God. And so that's why they came in the darkest of night. Came so that the people would not see what they were doing. But Jesus says, even though that's how you are arresting me, I understand what's going on. I understand your hypocrisy, but I also understand God's plan. And so he says at the end of verse 49, this has happened, that the scriptures, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This was not something unexpected, but this was something that was predicted in the Old Testament. And our Lord is probably alluding to Zechariah 13, 7 once again, where it is said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It could be alluding to Isaiah 53, 
where Jesus is identified with criminals, so to speak. But our Lord, on his death march to the cross, repeatedly predicted that he would be handed over, that he would be betrayed. He knew that this time was coming. And so he said, in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and Mark 10, verse 33, that he would be handed over to the religious leaders. He said earlier, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, right before that, he would be betrayed, that one of you would betray me. So our Lord understood this event. He was not shocked by it. His feathers were not ruffled. He had submitted himself to the will and plan of God. And as he is in the garden, and as they seize him, he doesn't call for angels to rescue him. He doesn't say to the rest of the disciples, pull out your swords, let's start fighting. He submits that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He understood why he was there. But lastly, we see the followers of Jesus fled from there. Jesus' closest disciples were there, not just Peter, but the other ten were there. So you have 11 of the disciples. They're all there when Jesus is arrested. And Mark tells us that they all left him. Each and every last one of the 11, when Jesus was seized and arrested, they left him. They deserted him. Some of these individuals had been personally called by Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, we read of Peter and Andrew. Jesus saying to them, them, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And what did they do? They left their nets and followed Jesus. When Jesus came to James and John, they were fixing their nets in the boat of their father. And Jesus called them to follow him. And they left their father and followed Jesus. But now, here they are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what happens? Instead of leaving father and mother and others, They leave Jesus. They deserted him. And not only did they desert him, the text says they fled. They took off running. The closest of Jesus' disciples took off running. The very ones who said earlier, we will never, ever deny you. Even Peter, the one who said, I'd be willing to die for you. But all of them, all of the 11, deserted 
Jesus in fled. And then there was a young man who was following Jesus. Not in the sense of being a disciple of Jesus, but literally following Jesus. It says in our text in verse 51, a certain man was following him. So as they have arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're leading him out of the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a young man following. And the text goes to great length to make sure that we know that this young man is not properly clothed. (laughs) It says he was wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. That was not how you dressed at this time in the night. A linen sheet is expensive wardrobe. That costs money. So whoever this individual was, the individual had money, but was not properly clothed. And the crowd did to this man, or attempted to do to this man what they did to Jesus. They seized him. The very term that was used of Jesus. Yet when it came to this young man, this certain young man, when they laid his hands upon this individual, all they got was his linen sheet. They didn't get him. The outer garment or a long shirt. So their hands grabbed that. But this individual left the linen sheet behind, and fled. And the text said he fled naked. Now that could be, no, that he he fled just like in his underwear, or that could be that he fled with nothing on at all. And it really doesn't matter because the fact that he fled and others saw him leaving and fleeing and running being improperly clothed must have brought great shame to this young man. Can you imagine somebody's after you and you leave the clothes with them and you take off, but you got to run through people with no clothes on or improperly clothed. Oh, the shame that must have come upon this young man. But it was more important to run away from Jesus and to flee from him by being clothed shamefully than it was to be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the followers of Jesus were there when he was arrested But they fled from there, leaving their Lord, leaving their master, leaving their Savior. Were you there when they arrested my Savior? Maybe you don't recognize yourself being there, but let me help you out. Maybe. You were there in the person of Judas, the betrayer. 
Maybe he's the one who represents you. You've heard about Jesus. You've seen Jesus in Scripture. You are familiar with the words of Jesus. But that has not resulted in you giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, you continue to betray him. Continue to hand him over instead of embracing him and following him. Maybe you are one of the members of the crowd. They were basically operating under the direction and guidance of the religious leaders. The religious leaders had duped them into thinking that they were doing the right thing in arresting Jesus and coming after Jesus with clubs and swords. They had been misled into thinking that somehow Jesus was not who he claimed to be. But regardless, they were just as guilty as Judas. They seized Jesus, Jesus, and hand him over, handed him over to the religious leaders that he might be tried and killed on the cross. Maybe you're there in the person of Peter. You admire Peter's love for the Lord. You admire the fact that Peter was willing to stand for the Lord and defend the Lord. But Peter got it wrong again on this occasion. Peter was not willing to submit himself to the plan of God. Peter thought he knew what was best. Peter thought he knew how to direct his life in the life of the Lord. And maybe you're like that. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. You you follow him. You're willing to defend him. But, But when you look at your life and you boil it all down, you are submitted to your will instead of the will of God. Maybe you're there in the person of Peter. Maybe you think you know what's best instead of God knowing what's best. Maybe you're there in the person of Jesus. Not that you're Jesus, but you understand what the arrest is all about and how it fits in the plan of God. Maybe God in his grace has opened your eyes, removed the blinders, and caused you to understand that this arrest was a part of his sovereign plan for his son to provide salvation for you and for me. That takes the work of God the Spirit to allow you and to allow me or anyone to understand why Jesus was there. Jesus was not startled or shocked or alarmed or surprised by what happened to him. He knew that it was all a part of God's plan to provide salvation for men and women and boys and girls. So the question is, do you understand why Jesus was there? But maybe you were there fleeing from Jesus. 
Maybe that's who you identify with. The 11 disciples who deserted Jesus and fled. Or even that unusual disciple. I didn't tell you who I thought he was, but I think he's actually the writer of the Gospel of Mark, John Mark. He's the only one that records the event. Matthew, Luke, and John don't mention it at all. Only Mark, and I think Mark indirectly is referring to himself, that he was not properly clothed. And they tried to seize him. But there was no way was he going to allow them to arrest him. He'd rather run through the crowds and through the people naked and with his head bowed down and ashamed. Maybe you, maybe me, if I was there, would have done the same thing. When they arrested Jesus, you would have fled. So, were you there? When they arrested my Lord, I trust that God will use this passage in your life so that the arrest and betrayal of Jesus is not some detached event or just one little tick on the calendar that leads to the death of Jesus. You and I need to think more seriously about the arrest of Jesus so that we might tremble, tremble, tremble. And hopefully, by engaging yourself with this text, the text will come alive to you and you will recognize how valuable and how important this event in the life of Jesus actually was. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, oftentimes we read about the arrest of Jesus and really don't pay much attention to it. We just see it as an event in the life of the Lord. But Father, we thank you that you have given, your word, given us your word and that it has opened up to us the arrest of Jesus so that we will not be detached from it, are divorced from it, are separated from it, but instead attached to it and realize that this marvelous event was all a part of your plan for our Lord and Savior in providing salvation for men and women and boys and girls. Thank you that as Jesus is going to the cross, the arrest of Jesus is part of your sovereign plan for him. And that ultimately, it will lead to the crucifixion. But more importantly, it will lead to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior from the dead. Thank you for our Savior. May it cause us to tremble as we think about this event. And may it cause us to love our Savior more. We pray this in his name. Amen.